0: Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we have Kim Barber-Foss, who is a clinical researcher and high school athletic trainer in the Cincinnati area through Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, The reason we connected up with Kim is her vast interest in clinical research. She has worked with some of the top researchers and been a part of some of the top research Um, in the country and probably the world when it comes to ACL and has had a lot of insight of being able to take that research from kind of the lab and beyond and apply it in the clinical setting and so we talk about how to make that connection and why it's so important for athletic trainers to have that ability. So really insightful episode there. As always we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Please give them a look as you're coming up with your new year for bids and whatnot for supplies. But without further ado, enjoy this episode. Episode of Athletic Training Chat, we are on with Kim Barbara Foss, and we are going to be talking about research, um, specifically clinical research. Uh, this is one just in doing a little bit of background looking. I'm looking forward to um, hearing your viewpoint on all this and how you've done as much as you've done and the people you've been working with. But before we get into all of those type of questions, I'd like to turn it over to you to give some background um, on where you're at currently and how you kind of got there.
1: All right. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for having me today. Well, I've been an athletic trainer for 28 years now. I've been at Cincinnati Children's Hospital for the last 15, working in sports medicine research. But I'm still also a practicing high school athletic trainer. That's really where my passion lies, working in the secondary school setting. But I've been really fortunate, a great career, to work in a whole array of research-related topics as a research clinician from biomechanics. Um, I do have a master's degree in biomechanics, so I've been able to kind of take advantage of that, especially since I had children's with RACL injuries. And then from epidemiology, looking at a lot of injury rates and trends to now we've been doing a lot of concussion work. And now we're kind of shifting over a lot to looking at um, brain and musculoskeletal c- connection and neuroplasticity. Pretty excited about that avenue. And then also looking at virtual reality and uh, ways to implement virtual reality from a rehabilitation standpoint, and then maybe even performance enhancement. So some exciting projects that uh, we have moving forward in that regard too.
0: The Cincinnati Children's Hospital brings it all together because I had saw when I was looking at uh, some of the research stuff you've been a part of with Dr. Tim Hewitt um, and trying to figure out that connection because we've been doing some work with uh, Nate Bates right. Um, who I'm sure you worked with, um, cause they're in Mayo Clinic yep. in Rochester and we're just an hour and 15 minutes away from them. So we yeah, got- Nate,
1: Nate was one of our PhD students.
0: Yep. And so, so I, I used
1: to work a lot with him.
0: Now it all comes full circle on how that, all that <laughs> connection, um, has been made. Um, I, I kind of referenced as we were messaging back and forth, um, the research world, I think, is obviously huge and vast and you know all the different uh, things you've been a part of, but really the importance of tying it into the clinical practice. And so I guess first, just kind of what drew you into being so involved with research while also maintaining you know your work as a practicing athletic trainer. And mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it really kind of ties it together you know, a lot of lab-based research is great, a lot of breakthroughs, but how does that actually implement our day-to-day as an athletic trainer? And I think bridging that realm of the laboratory and the research studies with the clinical day-to-day practice is what's really important. And I think that's something that's really unique, especially as an athletic training researchers, we get to actually decide if we're going to adapt or adopt or abandon this laboratory research? How are we gonna improve our day-to-day practice? How are we going to implement these new techniques or new research findings for the patients that we're gonna be treating? And I think that was really what really drew me to research is because I love being an athletic trainer, but I want to also incorporate current evidence-based practice, you know, new techniques, new findings, new modalities, new results, And I wanna actually be able to translate that into what I'm gonna do with my patients on a day-to-day basis to make sure they have the best outcomes possible. And I think athletic trainers are probably some of the best clinician researchers out there because we have that day-to-day concept. We have the clinical thoughts and we also have, we always wanna make sure we have the best outcomes for our patients that we treat. So I think we're really the ideal profession to develop as clinician researchers. And that's why I even put a call out on Twitter a couple of times now that, you know, unfortunately a lot of us athletic trainers have some downtime right now with schools and sports kind of being on hiatus. So let's take this opportunity to really develop our research side. You know, I'm sure we all have these great case studies that we've come across. You know, let's write those up. Let's present them. Let's develop that other side of our profession as the researchers you know, like, like take advantage of that time right now. And I even put a call out on Twitter that I'm happy to help anybody that has a case study. I'll help them write them up as an abstract or just even to develop their scholarly skills. We'll put that together.
0: Well, You just segue to so many questions that I had. Um, I <laughs> out which one I'd like to hit first. Um, I think maybe I will hold on some of the getting involved in that towards the end um because that is definitely something and a path i'm going that i'll definitely want to talk about but um one question I had on there is, and you kind of referenced it um, is evidence based practice and this is a discussion i've had with a lot of people, and you know first, I will want to know what your definition of it is because I know some people take it as truly if it 's not in the evidence, then it's not a thing that can be done, and I've had some discussions with some professors and some different people that are no longer really practicing clinically, but doing more of the academia, what that means, but then kind of my interpretation of it. And you almost have to experiment a little bit to know what to go and look for the evidence. But before I keep rambling, what what is your take on evidence-based practice and how that all blends together uh, specifically for athletic training?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I may have a unique perspective because I also teach research methods For a couple of uh, different schools. So, you know, evidence-based practice to me is a tripod. So it's going to take into account the best research that's out there, which could be laboratory-based, study-based. But it also, as part of that tripod, takes into the athletic trainer's experiences as well as um, their beliefs. and, um, And then it also is the patient outcomes. So then the patient experience is also part of that. So I think there's a big kind of misconception and almost like a negative feeling that I've noticed that a lot of athletic trainers seem to have when they hear, you know, evidence-based practice is it seems like they're interpreting that, that all of these research studies are going to discount everything that they may have been doing in their career and having great success with. And really, it's just trying to incorporate some of these new findings and adapting them to your current setting. And one of the things that I always teach in my class is, you know, evidence-based practice isn't telling us that we need to change everything that we do. We have like the three A's. We can adapt, we can adopt, or we can abandon. So if we, new research comes out, we can you know look at it, critically appraise it, and we may adapt it into what we're doing. We may change something we're doing. We may do something a little bit differently. We may adopt it. We may, you know, not necessarily do everything that they're doing in the research study, but let's change what we're doing clinically to maybe try it to see if we have a better outcome. So let's adopt some new findings into our clinical practice in our care for their patients. And then there's an abandon. Sometimes there may be research that comes out or a change that we may not implement in our day-to-day clinical practices because we've already had great success in what we're doing. So we may abandon it. We don't have to change everything that we're doing because something tells us differently. So I think if we're having a lot of success in what we're doing clinically, we don't have to change everything, but be open to that. Be open to maybe adapting some new principles into what we're doing to have a better outcome in the long run. So I think it's just kind of getting over some of that closed-mindedness You know, and as you know, ethic training is built a lot on tradition. You know, it's kind of the way it's always been done. That's the way I'm always going to do it. Right. Well, something else may come up that may just implement and help and expand upon the care that you can provide. Not stop doing what you've been doing that you've been very successful at, but why not be open to something helping to, um, you know, give you even better results. So it's kind of my viewpoint on that. The The whole tripod is, and our experiences and our perceptions are just as important as what research is telling us.
0: Yeah, I know that's one for me more recently, I've kind of expanded the, you know, just, but it's like, why am I actually doing this? Like, I feel like I've just been doing this because it's what I was taught. And i stealing this from somebody else that I can't remember now is like the three why tests. Like, if you can really truly answer three times when you ask why you're doing something, then you probably have a pretty solid foundation. If at any point you fall off of that, maybe it's time to reimagine or you know, rethink what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Research can be time intensive. Um, (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Not only, I mean, not only in the development of it, you know, the the grant writing and everything else. How have you found time to balance all of that while still doing all of your clinical work?
1: Well, I guess a lot of it is time management skills. And I'm also a perpetual insomniac. So I don't sleep very much. But it's just a lot of it's prioritizing and time management and blocking out chunks to make sure, you know, we stay on task. You know, and a lot of athletic training research is also seasonal because our sports are seasonal, too. So if we're doing a study that may involve fall athletes, you're going to be really busy in the summer and the fall, but maybe not quite as much in the spring as you're preparing for the next project. So that's one thing that it's great and challenging is the seasonal nature of a lot of our our research. You know, which with uh, kind of the hiatus right now, trying and prepare things for the fall, of course, is going to be challenging because it's kind of a slowdown right now. But a lot of it is just trying to stay on task, time management, focus. Um, we're also trying to, you know, I'm trying to like mentor other people as well. Let's get them kind of involved. Mm-hmm. We tend to bring on like a lot of interns to help us and just kind of help develop them professionally as well.
0: So this is a question I was going to ask on the last one, but I lost my train of thought. Um, how do you like going through the research? Um, I know that I just use this example a lot um, with my students. I worked a lot of track and field. Um, IT band issues were something that it was just always on the forefront. So I did a deep dive into every research article I could find that had that in there. And some of it is conflicting. Some say you should strengthen you know, lateral and, hip and posterior chain and that should help. And others say it basically didn't do anything to help the person's knee pain. How, you know, being in the science that you are and also in the clinic thoughts on how to balance those things, you know, along that um, kind of tripod that you were talking about in evidence-based practice.
1: Well, that's a great question. Cause I mean, across a lot of research, we do get a lot of conflicting results You know, sometimes we'll replicate a study, which may help kind of push it one way or the other, whether you're going to believe the results or not. But I think sometimes it's just also basing upon what you're going to adopt based upon your own, your experience that you've seen. So with your IT bands, if you found some success when you've done some strengthening with the athletes, you're probably more inclined to follow the research that is showing that the strengthening does help. So I think a lot of it is just also incorporating your personal experience, but then maybe also be willing to try something different. Maybe if you've never done strengthening before, and you now find some research that does show some specific interventions that may be beneficial, being open to trying something new to see if you do get the results that they may have shown research-wise, see if you show them the same clinically.
0: I think that's... So important, and kind of coming back to some of the ACL stuff that I'm sure you were involved with um, with Dr. Hewitt. Just uh, I don't have the, the paper specifically off the top of my head, but I remember in a talk he gave locally to us, um, he was talking about ACL recovery basically taking two years to fully come back. And some people heard that, and it was just like, Wait, why well, are we doing this all wrong? Because that's coming from you know one of the leading experts in the world on ACL injury, but not you didn't present it in that had to be the only way it was more, mm-hmm. you have to kind of keep all of that in mind. And I think that's a hard thing sometimes for people to, it,
1: it is. Kind of
0: integrate. A- yeah. Thoughts. An
1: ACL is one of those areas that has really kind of come full circle. Like back when I was a student and first starting out, you got an ACL injury. You were a minimum of 12 months before you did any type of um, activity again, or even potentially really stack to return to sport, it was a minimum of 12 months. And then we started seeing the shift in progression to really rapid returns where athletes were coming back in four to six months. But then you started seeing follow-up issues and secondary ACLs. So now we've kind of come full circle that maybe we need to actually wait longer before we're returning the kids and see if they have better outcomes in that regard, and having less likelihood of second injury or uh, longer-term issues related to knee osteoarthritis. So it's kind of like the research has been just evolving, and now we're almost back to where we started, even though there's been tons of great studies along the way showing the efficacy of all of the different types of surgery graphs and protocols, but now we're kind of back again. Let's just slow things down. Because physiologically, you kind of come back to the point that at some point, the body needs to actually heal. So, And we can't necessarily rush physiology. So maybe that's what we should have been listening to all along.
0: That's a really interesting point, that it always comes back to those basics. Like tissue healing is tissue healing. And that's a whole other level of science and research to get that part to potentially speed up, if that's even feasible.
1: But if you look at like a bone, we know bone takes eight kind of eight weeks to heal you know we don't try and mess with that but we've tried to change physiologically musculoskeletal return you know they generally have a specific healing time as well maybe we need to just start listening to that
0: i hadn't thought about it completely like that I, i like that i like that take on it Sometimes I've even argued with ankle injuries. I was like, well, if you had broken your leg, we about know how long this would take. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with yep. your sprained ankle, I mean, it could take two weeks. It could take two months. It's, you know, I, I don't yep. pretend to understand why one person takes so much longer than the other one. It seemingly is the same injury from all intents and purposes. So, mm-hmm.
1: But therein lies the potential central nervous system and brain link <laughs> in a musculoskeletal injury. So I think over the next five years, we're going to start seeing a lot more really cool research looking at that connection.
0: Just because it kind of got brought up, and you mentioned that this is something you know that you might be involved in, kind of going forward. Like, what do you see kind of as that? I don't know if this is the best way to say kind of that next frontier um, of the research in in that regard.
1: Well, I think we're going to see a lot more work looking at like neuroplasticity and looking at the whole brain central nervous system connection because, you know, every tendon muscle fiber, you know, it's all connected. So I think that area is really going to blossom. I think we're also going to see a lot more work in kind of like biofeedback and internal augmented feedback so that um, athletes can start relying on themselves and, you know, intrinsic feedback, which you know, has always been more beneficial than extrinsic feedback. And I also think we're going to see a huge boom in like virtual reality, even to the point of maybe, you know, home rehab with a with virtual athletic trainer, or virtual therapist, helping them with those things as well. And then also, I mean, when you incorporate the vision, the virtual reality, you're also kind of dual tasking and you're triggering the brain connection. So I think that's going to be a whole area that's pretty exciting moving forward.
0: Yes, that will be fascinating. I've seen a few of those things coming back, coming out already uh, in those initial stages. But yeah, it will be very interesting what that ends up being. Um, you can kind of preface this, if you'd like, um, with kind of what your specific role is in um, your job setting currently, um, but kind of qualifying it as a dual role. Um, what are some of the advantages you have found to that? And again, I'll have some follow-ups after you kind of explain what your what your current um, job setting is. But
1: well, I mean, most of my time is spent in research at Sports Medicine at Children's, so I'm kind of working on our clinical studies that we do. But my passion is still being the high school athletic trainer, so I don't know how I would ever kind of give that up because that's what makes me get up every day. That's that's what motivates me. So, I, in a lot of ways, I kind of have the best of both worlds because I kind of get to be, you know, cutting edge. I get to explore ideas that we have, you know, when we're trying to come up with a new project. It's like, you know, what if? You know, what if we thought about this? Let's explore that. So, it's really invigorating to get to put thoughts into action. But then at the backside, once we've come up with some of our results of the studies, being able to implement that with my kids, I think is just phenomenal because then I, I kind of feel like I'm giving them cutting edge care as well that they deserve.
0: Are there any drawbacks that you've found in kind of having this dual role?
1: Well, I mean, time commitment can be one of them. And then, you know, sometimes when you do intervention studies, It it can be challenging, especially if you know, you know, say, for example, doing a neuromuscular training intervention program, when you kind of know that's going to be beneficial, they're going to have better results from doing that. You know, we did a really large um, intervention study on trying to do ACL prevention. So, you know, a lot of those exercises that help with neuromuscular control, help with core stability are beneficial to prevent ACL injury. So it's kind of hard, especially as an athletic trainer, when we always think about our athletes. We want to do everything to prevent them from being hurt. So it's sometimes I felt challenged having to work with a control group that's maybe just doing some running. They're not doing the intervention. So, you know, you want to make sure everybody gets the best. So as an athletic trainer, that was challenging for me because I may not have felt that they received the best treatment, but that's also part of research. They're having to be a control group.
0: I, I, can, uh, I can understand that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're running one where it's a placebo intervention you know, with um, potential supplementation and concussion. It's like, man, if one of these is really working, like, I almost feel a little bad. But mm-hmm. I'm, obviously, we won't know until the end of it all. But yeah, that same theory <laughs> of... I'm looking forward to this being done, so if it does work, we can really get it implemented <laughs> with everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes we, you get to the point after you've done a study for a while, nobody wants to be a control anymore.
0: Right. You know, especially I, after
1: I, preliminary I, results start coming out that an intervention works, you know, it's it's more challenging to get control subjects.
0: Absolutely. Definitely in my career, I went from never thinking I was going to have anything to do with research um, to then getting to work with some instructors at the university I'm at and now um, with some other sports medicine researchers, both locally and we kind of referenced earlier uh, from Mayo Clinic in Rochester. It seems like every time we have an idea for a new piece of equipment or something, we're like, well, can we turn this into a study? You know, like, can we kind of get the best of both worlds with this thing? And obviously, for us at my institution we're on a smaller budget, so anytime we can find a grant that helps us out, we're always for it too. Um, what would you say to somebody that maybe is more strictly clinical and hadn't thought about research, that maybe has been thinking about it, that wants to get involved? What would advice would you give them, or to to put, them on?
1: Right, definitely. think about something that was interesting that you encountered. Think about an interesting case that was unique. Um, Think about that, I think is great. Think about questions that you want to answer. If you're seeing something with your patients or in your athletic training room, that you kind of go, hmm, I wonder if I can do something better, or I wonder why I'm seeing this, or why am I maybe seeing an increase in this type of injury? So think about something that's a question that's personal to you that you want to answer, and that can lay the foundation of how you can maybe move forward and set it up as a research study. And research doesn't have to be these formal studies with you know, grants and funding. I mean, research can simply just be answering a question that you may have. It doesn't have to be set up and so rigid. And I think people find that so daunting. They think you know, research has to be this huge, long process, and it's all formal. And I think if we just think... Research is just answering a basic question. That's really all research is.
0: So it doesn't have to be the manuscript that gets typed up to get submitted to the journal?
1: Not in most people's worlds. It doesn't. <laughs> in my world, yes. But right. most people, no. But it's not to say that it can't be turned into a, a case report that they can turn around and present to their local organization or to their district you know, that they can turn that into something scholarly. I mean, the door is so open for clinical research that we need more athletic trainers willing to step through that door.
0: So kind of going off of that, you know, are there any, you, you alluded to it a little bit, but like any best practices or resources, I guess, resources are definitely the one that I'm curious, you know, that you found throughout your career to kind of help, even with just better understanding the process, I'm currently going back through an educational program and took a quantitative and qualitative research class and understood it as I was going through it. But then I, when I finished one and went to the other, I kind of for, unfortunately forgot <laughs> some of the other stuff that uh, I need to go back and review, especially in all this downtime. But um, I still kind of find it overly daunting to make sure that, you know, I'm setting it up correctly and that this is going to be the most efficient way to do things. So advice or resources or anything that you have that could be beneficial? I
1: think one of the best resources, I think, is mentorship. Um, I know when I started out, I had a few people that were mentors, and they really kind of helped me get started. And, you know, I think that could really help develop young researchers is working with somebody that is kind of established that can help you kind of go through some of the loops and help you figure out the path to take. So I think that's really beneficial. And I know like the NATA Foundation has also developed, you know, they have their research alliance with the research agenda. And so they've been also working with some work groups and task groups to try and figure out how to get more access to research for athletic trainers. So I think some of that's going to be coming out as well. But I really think reaching out to, other athletic trainers, other researchers, and just asking for guidance, help, advice. I mean, I would never turn anybody away because I know firsthand the value of having a mentor. So I think that's definitely something that I think people should take, take advantage of. And don't ever – I think people are maybe shy about, oh, I don't want to ask them. That's going to be a silly question. As a researcher. I would welcome anybody asking me questions like like that because I think that's part of our role. You know, I'm kind of on the other end of my career. I think that's part of my my role. My professional responsibility now is to help other people move move up in their profession as well. So I think that's part of me giving back to other athletic trainers. And I'm sure other researchers probably feel the same way that I do. That that's that's part of being a professional is helping to mentor and lead the future generation.
0: It's fantastic and good to know. I'll feel less shy about asking a dumb research question because I know there is
1: no such thing as a dumb research question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know my my I've got a buddy who is a PhD locally, and we do a lot of work together. I was like, sorry, I'm asking this again, but what did you mean by this? And he's been good about walking me through some of the processes and I just try to make sure to take good notes so I don't ask them the same question too many times.
1: (laughs) And I think we're always learning. I mean, I'm going back from my PhD now at this stage and I just I'm in a qualitative research class, which to me is like totally foreign. Right. Because I've always been quantitative. So it's like learning the bare basics there. So I'm you know trying to ask those questions like, okay, I've been doing this for so many years. I don't understand this. (laughs) But you know, we're always learning and there is no such thing as a, a bad question because it it's just part of the, the process and the path.
0: Yeah, I just finished that class and always figured I would go something quantitative um, in what I thought I was going to do, but now I'm f- pretty much fully convinced it'll be qualitative or some version of a mixed methods, but mm-hmm. heavily qualitative. Um, and then I'm currently in a theory of knowledge course that's, been a little a little mind-bending to, to think about in different ways, but it's been good. Anything else specifically you wanted to cover around athletic training and research um, that we haven't gotten to quite yet?
1: I'm not sure. I just I think we really need to I guess I'll, pull a, I'll put a plug in here for uh, COPA) um, Developed an analytics and outcomes committee, which of course sounds very, you know, nerdy and intense. <laughs> but we're working on a project that's actually going to be called Demystifying Data because we think that there's such a negative concept around data, but it really can be anything. And part of that ties into athletic trainer value and worth that we want, you know, athletic trainers to really document so that they can like, show their value, show their worth to employers, but also to the profession because documentation will help us establish you know, injury rates, trends, what is occurring across the profession at the different levels. So I think it's just thinking about research as not such a big foreign concept sitting up on a pedestal. It's really just answering any type of question you have.
0: Awesome. That sounds fascinating and really beneficial. I like the title of it, the demystifying. I think that's well said.
1: And and it's a good thing I don't sleep much because I'm trying to put all that together now.
0: Yeah. Then on top of a PhD program. So yeah, a a couple things going on. Yeah. Well, with that, would you like to move into our athletic training chat questions? Sure. So the first one is where do you see the profession of athletic training going in the next five to 10 years?
1: Interesting question. Um, I see it really kind of blossoming into a different settings. So, you know, we have what used to be the emerging settings, but I think now it's more accurately the emerged settings because we are in more private practice, physician extenders, military but I think more and more athletic trainers may even be pursuing the private practice, opening their own athletic training services. And I think really you're going to start seeing athletic trainers anywhere that a healthcare provider could be. So I think we're going to be more visible in more settings. I hope with all my heart that we do finally reach one of the, The stated goals, this was many years ago, that every high school would have an athletic trainer. I mean, as a secondary school athletic trainer, that is my ultimate drive and passion is that every high school has an athletic trainer. And I think we're only at what 40% have access or 40% don't have access. So, I mean, there's still a significant number where we still need our services. So, I think we're going to see a blossoming in kinds of different settings but part of me also hopes that we still don't lose traction in our traditional roles too
0: if you could go back and give yourself advice as a young athletic trainer if you could set where this would be um, what advice would you give yourself
1: wow Hmm. that's interesting because i i never actually saw myself doing what i'm doing now So that's interesting. I'll never forget when I first walked into my undergraduate program, I was hell-bent on being the first female athletic trainer in the NBA. That was all I wanted to do. And then it shifted to wanting to work for NASA. So I did a lot of work on uh, ways to combat bone density loss in zero gravity when I was at Oregon. So I wanted to work for NASA, but now, I mean, I love being a high school athletic trainer so I guess the advice I would give myself is don't necessarily lock yourself in to what you think you're going to do, but be open to any path that presents itself. I mean, my favorite poem is like the Robert Frost, uh, The Two Roads. I think about that all the time is, you know, taking that road less traveled, you may find phenomenal. Um, professional career um, personal development at the end of that road and that's kind of the way I feel I kind of took some alternate paths and I wouldn't change anything now at this point
0: I think that's great advice Um, you may have kind of alluded to this earlier but uh, what would be one of the most influential resources that you have found in your career
1: fellow athletic trainers because I think everybody has experienced something and it's just communicating with your colleagues and building those relationships and networks with uh, other professionals. I think we provide the best resources for others.
0: That has been a very common theme amongst all of these and I think so for good reason, which has been awesome. Every once in a while Twitter comes up too, which is also kind of unique, but.
1: I mean, we're a profession that really is unique. We're not like any other. We have so many different hats that we wear. So everybody really is an expert in something. So I think it's building those relationships and connecting with people and drawing upon their expertise always makes us better athletic trainers.
0: Absolutely. If you could change or eliminate one thing, it could be a modality, a common practice, a mindset, whatever it may be, uh, you can have your pick. Um, in the field of athletic training, what would it be and why? Hmm.
1: I'm a pretty rigid person, but I would say that would be something I would eliminate. You know, we are so rooted in tradition. I think sometimes we may get closed-minded to potential. So I think that would be one thing I would eliminate is the total focus on the past so that we're close to the future.
0: I like that one a lot. That's a good one. Um, and then finally, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you?
1: Well, it's, I don't actually consider myself. I'm not being an athletic trainer. I like, I am an athletic trainer. It's not a job. It's kind of part of me, I guess you could say. Um, I think Many athletic trainers, we all have a lot of the same core characteristics that draws this athletic training in the first place. So really, it's something that I've lived, breathed for, you know, my entire adult life. I knew at 16 that I wanted to become an athletic trainer. So it's really the only path I've ever had. And I tell like young grads now that, you know, I'm almost 50 and they're just like, you're still doing this. And I said, I get up every day, excited to go to work excited to have an impact with kids and just excited to make a difference and what other profession can you have such profound difference on the people that we interact with so yeah i live eat and breathe being an athletic trainer it's something and i'm I'm proud of it i'm proud of our profession
0: yes I, i think that's something that's evolved for me more so recently especially looking at some of the leadership stuff that can come with it and just a different mindset with it. It's not, a, it's not just a job. It's Absolutely.
1: If you view time. it as a job, you're going to be the, the people that are burnt out after four years in practice, because it, it's not a job. You can't, you can't necessarily always set hours. It's, it's something that you have to be passionate about.
0: Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share or cover?
1: Well, I appreciate you having me. And, you know, anybody that may be interested in a type of research, please reach out to me. Feel free. I am happy to help in any way I can and provide any type of mentorship possible.
0: What would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? And we can link this up when we do our show notes.
1: Well, I am on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. Email is great. So Anyway.
0: Awesome. We'll we will link those up. Uh, and really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I wish it was under better worldly circumstances, uh, but we we do appreciate the chance to connect.
1: Great. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.